Welcome to The Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 15, Jan Hus. Welcome back. So last time we learned about John Wycliffe and the great reformations that he wanted to make in the church. Well, this week we're going to be learning about Wycliffe's greatest disciple, a man named Jan Hus, also known in English as John Hus. Now, the two men never met, but John Hus is probably more famous than Wycliffe, and he's often known as the chief forerunner of the Reformation. Jan Hus is also one of the great tragedies of the church. He would be burned at the stake at a church council for refusing to recant his beliefs. He's probably the most, or one of the most, unfairly treated churchmen in the church's whole history, and his mistreatment would have tragic consequences for the church far later. But we'll discover that as we go. First, we need to refresh ourselves on the world in which Huss lived. Well, you might be getting a little familiar with it, since we've stayed about this time for a while now. Huss was born in 1369. Remember, this is the time of the Avignon Papacy, when the popes were living in France and were basically puppets of the French government. Then, in 1378, two popes were elected, and no one knew for sure who was the real pope. And remember, the different countries of Europe lined up behind the different popes, and it's now known as the Great Western Schism. To make matters worse, these two popes, and then later their successors, were in competition for support across Europe, so both popes left aside the reform that the church desperately needed to instead raise money and consolidate power. This meant that there was a lot of selling of indulgences, and that many blind eyes were turned towards the buying and selling of church offices. It was not a good time for the church. This is the time when Hus was growing up. Jan Hus was born in a little town called Husica, which basically means goose town, and that's where he gets his name. Hus and his supporters would have a lot of fun making puns and jokes about this, since Hus literally just means goose. Husica was in modern-day Checha, in the region of Bohemia. This region had been introduced to Christianity by none other than our friends Cyril and Methodius, way back from episode 6 in the 800s. Bohemia in the 1300s was very ethically diverse. Besides Czech people, there were Germans, Poles, Lithuanians, and other small groups. And Bohemia itself was not a totally independent kingdom. It was a kingdom inside of the Holy Roman Empire. Remember, the Holy Roman Empire is that strange amalgamation of cities and kingdoms that is roughly where modern-day Germany is. It would take too long to get into the complexities of it, so just know that Bohemia is part of a bigger state as well. Bohemia's capital was Prague, and during the late 1300s, Prague was a flourishing city. It had not long ago opened up a new university, and soon the University of Prague was top tier among all the schools in Europe. Students from across Europe came to study there, and especially German students. From the beginning, this made a divide between the students and faculty, between Germans and Czechs. And later, as controversies would arise, these two parties would take opposite sides of whatever the issue was. Huss came to the university probably around 1389, and apparently he was not an incredible student, but he wasn't a bad student either. He would support himself financially by singing on street corners and in churches, 
and he lived on the very cheap food of peas and bread. He also greatly enjoyed chess, and admitted later in life that he might have wasted too much time playing it. Basically, he was your typical college student who lived on ramen noodles and spent too much time playing video games. But even at school, he was a very good church member. And like every other faithful church member, he purchased indulgences, spending some of his very scarce funds to do it. Everyone who knew him, even later on his enemies, would always speak of his personal character and piety. In 1401, Huss got a job teaching at his university. And before long, he was elected dean of the faculty of philosophy and then for a while, rector of the university. So while he might not have been an incredible student, he proved that he was a great teacher, very eloquent and charismatic. He was also ordained a priest in 1401. A year later, in 1402, Huss got a position as a preacher in one of Prague's biggest pulpits, a place known as Bethlehem Chapel. Here people from all over Prague would hear Huss preach, and many of Huss's enemies would be very sad he ever got such a position. Before long, he was famous in the whole region as the great preacher of Bethlehem Chapel, and he became known as someone who was not afraid to criticize the laxity and corruption he saw in the church hierarchy. Huss's preaching, by all accounts, was very powerful, and while he made his own personal notes in Latin, he usually preached in Czech, the common language of the people. That made him very popular with the commoners, because he spoke like one of them. He also would make sure his sermons could be understood by everyone and tried to be direct and simple. And while he quoted the Bible regularly, he would also quote other church fathers, like Augustine, Gregory the Great, Bernard of Clairvaux, and even Thomas Aquinas. But Huss was not the first great preacher in Prague to do this. Several other men preached similar messages of repentance and reform against corruption. One of them, a few generations before, was named Conrad Walhauser, and he got into fights regularly with the local Franciscan friars. He believed that they too were leading people astray and becoming fat and lazy on the backs of the people, and making money on fake relics to boot. He claimed that these friars were so corrupt, and so unlike their founder Francis, that if Francis were alive, he would not only have disowned them, but would have them stoned. After this, there was also a man named Matthias of Yenau. Matthias was a great preacher as well, who focused on the Bible being the source of truth above any other. This would also be a foundation for Huss's theology. Matthias wrote, I have used in my writings the Bible above all else and in less degree the sayings of the doctors. But I always flee for refuge to the Bible, which is my dearest friend. He also pushed for something that Huss would push for himself. Matthias believed that Holy Communion should happen more often than it regularly did. At this time, many people had communion only once a year. But Matthias believed that even as the eye needs the sun constantly, so does the soul need the bread of the altar. Matthias also made enemies, and he was forbidden to preach for a time because of his ideas. Both of these men would be an influence to Huss, and they were models of great preachers stirring up the people with scripture. Huss would carry on the tradition well, but his greatest influence was our friend Wycliffe from last episode. Around 1401, Huss started to become very familiar with Wycliffe's writings. Some Prague students had traveled to England and brought back Wycliffe's work. As soon as Huss read Wycliffe, he basically idolized him. 
Here Huss saw a man unafraid to strike at the core of the problems the church was having, and a man who was committed to what the Bible actually said. And Huss wasn't the only one moved by Wycliffe's writings. These writings caused major debate in the whole university, the Czech part of the school strongly supporting Wycliffe, while the German part mostly rejected it. In 1403, the German part of the faculty won, and the university's official policy was not to teach Wycliffe anymore. But this did not stop Jan Hus. He kept on preaching, writing, and teaching Wycliffe's ideas, and he kept being very popular with the people. Hus, perhaps without realizing it, was riding a wave that was building in Bohemia and in other nations. He basically was so popular because of three different social forces. First, there was an energy against the fairly obvious abuses of the powerful in the church. Priests, monks, bishops getting rich off the church through simony, absenteeism, or nepotism. As Huss said once about the church, one pays for confession, for mass, for sacrament, for indulgences, for marrying a woman, for blessings, for burials, for funeral services and prayers, the very last penny which an old woman has hidden in her bundle for fear of thieves and robbery will not be saved. The villainous priest will grab it. And there were also the doctrinal challenges brought by Wycliffe and other thinkers. Things like translating the Bible into the vernacular. And some people were questioning the rigid doctrine that scholasticism had lain down and the church had formalized. And lastly, there was the desire of the Czech people to be independent. They did not want to be pawns of German interests, and they did not want to be subjects of Italian popes who would take their money from Bohemia to Italy. Huss was a challenge to all these things. Because Huss was so popular, the church hierarchy did not quite know what to do with Huss. For a long time, the Archbishop of Prague, a man named Zbigniew Zeitz, tolerated Huss's attacks against corruption and his teaching of Wycliffe's ideas. But in 1405, Pope Innocent VII put pressure on Zeitz to stop Huss, and Zeitz complied. Huss was not allowed to preach in Bethlehem Chapel anymore. But even with this pressure, Huss would not stop, and his popularity made him far too great a force to simply hush up. Around this time, the University of Prague began to fight over Wycliffe's writings again. This time, when the King of Bohemia stepped in, he officially supported the Czechs, and Wycliffe's writings were in the clear again. But because of this, most of the German students and faculty left to go to a new university in Leipzig. These Germans also began to spread the word that these Czechs taught and followed the word of heretics. A few years later, in 1409, the whole church was attempting to fix that nasty problem of having two popes. So a council was held in Pisa, Italy. The plan was for this council to end the schism in the church, so officially the council said that both of the other two popes were deposed, and they elected a third pope as replacement. Sounds great, but there was a problem. Neither of the other two popes would actually step down. So instead of making the problem better, it made it worse, because now instead of two popes, there were three popes. So once again, Europe was split. Now at this time, Bohemia decided to put its support behind the new third pope, pope named Alexander V. Zeitz, who'd now been struggling with Huss for several years, asked Alexander to officially condemn Huss. 
Alexander did just that, and ordered that all of Huss's and Wycliffe's writings be burned. Zeitz happily complied, which left him even more unpopular with the people of Prague. In fact, they even made a little poem about him. Zbigniew Bishop, ABC, burned the books, but never knew he what was written in them. Alexander also decided that Huss needed to be excommunicated, and officially condemned him that year. However, the people in Prague didn't really care. They loved Huss. The announcement actually caused riots in the street and several deaths. Huss and his friends defended themselves publicly and challenged anyone to show them how their beliefs were contrary to scripture. The king of Bohemia, a man named King Wenceslas, no, not the same one as the Christmas Carol, also came out in support of Huss. In 1412, even more problems came from the papacy. This time it did not come from Pope Alexander V, but from his successor, the notoriously bad Pope John XXIII. Quick note, there would be another Pope John XXIII in the 20th century, so don't confuse the two. This Pope John was currently trying to raise money for a war against his rivals, and was pushing indulgences heavily to raise money for it. Huss vigorously preached against these indulgences, and the people happily listened. Pope John was so upset with Huss that the whole city was put under interdict. This meant that no priest could officially baptize, commune, bury, or marry anyone. And while many in the city now doubted the Pope's authority to do this, Huss decided it would be best for the city if he simply vacated it for a while and let things cool down. So Huss then toured the Bohemian countryside and preached and taught to the country people and the country priests. Things were very different out in the countryside than in the city. Huss realized how little here the people knew about the basics of Christianity, so he began to preach and write on the fundamentals of the faith. These writings were mostly in Czech, because the country people and priests knew little or no Latin at all. While Huss was on his short self-imposed exile, big things were happening in Europe. A new council was being formed that promised to truly fix the schism that had been troubling the church for so long. This was the Council of Constance, and it looked very promising. The current Holy Roman Emperor, a man named Sigismund, was instrumental in bringing this council together. He also happened to be the brother of Huss's protector, King Wenceslas. And Sigmund wanted to resolve the problems with Huss, and he invited him to come to the council, hoping that an agreement could be reached and that the religious tension in Prague could finally stop. Emperor Sigismund even gave Jan Huss an official letter of safe conduct, meaning that he would not be hurt or killed if he came. Unfortunately, as we will see, that letter didn't turn out to mean much. Huss himself was not totally oblivious to the danger he would be in, and even with an official order of safe conduct, before he left Bohemia, he wrote his will. When Huss arrived at Constance, Pope John XXIII welcomed him. But as soon as Pope John realized that Huss would not simply recant on everything he'd written, he locked Huss up in prison. Sigismund, who had given Huss the word of safe passage, was furious. But Pope John convinced Sigismund that it was not a good look to be a defender of heretics, and that heretics had no rights anyways. Emperor Sigismund fought for Huss's freedom for a while, 
but was eventually convinced to leave Huss in the hands of the council. But things might have still been all right for Huss. The council quickly got to work deposing all of the popes that were currently out there, including Pope John. Well, Pope John didn't really like this, and he tried to run, but was very quickly caught and brought back. So it looked to many like Huss would be let go, since Pope John had been his greatest antagonist. But sadly, it was not the case. The Bishop of Constance instead moved Huss to an even worse prison and kept him chained up there. This council wanted to be seen as the defenders of orthodoxy, and they did not want anything to possibly bring that into question. This meant that they really had no time to even listen to what Huss actually believed, or to do any serious reflection on his challenges to the church. In addition to this, most of the church members had their eyes on something else. This was the council that would finally end the Great Western Schism, finally, after almost 40 years of multiple popes and split loyalties, they were going to reunite the church. And anything that could possibly upset that task needed to be dealt with promptly. Sadly, Huss appeared to be just such an obstacle. When Huss was officially tried, he was accused of many things he didn't actually believe. When he protested that he couldn't recant of things he didn't believe, he was told to recant them anyways. But Huss still refused. Recanting in this way would mean acknowledging that he was a heretic and agreeing that all of his friends and followers were heretics as well. And concerning the accusations of things Huss actually did teach, he said he was willing to recant if shown by scripture how they were wrong. This was still not good enough. So what was Huss actually accused of? Well, for the most part, he was accused of following the writings of Wycliffe and teaching all that Wycliffe taught. And without a doubt, Huss believed almost everything that Wycliffe believed, but I do want to point out not quite everything. For instance, while Wycliffe was against transubstantiation, Huss never at least officially had a problem with it. Of course, that didn't stop Huss from being accused of it also. But perhaps the greatest issue of Huss's beliefs was on the church. And in fact, Huss's greatest surviving work today is called De Ecclesia, which just means the church. Huss believed that the true church was the totality of all true believers on earth, and it was not tied to the hierarchy of the church, and it was not bound under the pope. This was in stark contrast against the official doctrine of the day, in which there could be no salvation outside of the official church structure, specifically under the pope. For all his accusations, real and imaginary, Huss was condemned. Huss repeatedly said that he would submit if he could be convinced by scripture, and that he was ready to discuss. But the council had no time for this. Huss was ceremoniously dressed in priest garbs, and then stripped of them, and his head was shaved to remove his tonsure. That's the bald part of the head that marked you as a priest or a monk. And then he was given a paper hat with demons on it, and the word heresiarch written on it. This means the leader or originator of a heresy. I should mention that at every turn, Huss's accusers wanted him to recant. They did not want to kill him. But Huss was not willing to turn away from what he believed to be true. And so they felt they were forced to do it. Now there's a lot of legend around Huss's burning at the stake. For instance, in one story, Huss said just before, Now you cook the goose, but someday a swan will rise. People take that swan to be Martin Luther. 
Or people say that the phrase, your goose is cooked, also comes from this incident. Remember, these are both puns on Huss's name. One quote we do have from Huss's final days is this, and it shows he was always prepared to pay the price for what he believed in. I hope that by God's grace, I am truly a Christian, not deviating from the faith, and that I would rather suffer the penalty of a terrible death than to wish to affirm anything outside of the faith or transgress the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so on July 6, 1415, a little over 600 years ago, Jan Hus was killed by being burned at the stake. Several of Hus's friends were also burned at the stake, including one good friend, Jerome of Prague, the man who'd first introduced Hus to Wycliffe's writings. By all accounts, they both died bravely. After this tragedy, the council moved on with its business. Remember, they were mostly there to reunite the church, not to burn heretics. And it's likely that many of them thought they had dealt with the unfortunate situation once and for all. But they could not be more wrong. Huss's death caused an uproar back in Bohemia. People were pretty rightly upset that Huss had been betrayed and that his safe conduct had been ignored. Far from ending the problem by killing Huss, the Pope and the Council made it far worse. The Bohemian people were not willing to submit to the ruling that Huss was a heretic, and they were willing to fight about it. In fact, it got so bad that in 1420, Pope Martin V declared a crusade against Bohemia. But the Hussites would not be gotten rid of that easy either. Emperor Sigismund tried to invade to restore papal authority, but the followers of Huss, both rich and poor, urban and rural, banded together, and it turns out they could form quite an army. Their symbol was a loaf and a cup, because they believed that all people should receive both bread and wine in communion, something that didn't happen very much anymore, as the wine would just be reserved for the priests. But amazingly, the Hussites, a much smaller army, were able to defeat Sigismund's forces. This was in large part thanks to two excellent commanders, Jan Ziska and the later Prokop the Great. And these two men were able to organize largely peasants into a serious fighting force, and also made ingenious war wagons, which basically meant putting blades and scythes on peasants' carts. The Hussites would then beat three more crusades against them. Finally, in 1436, an agreement was reached between the Hussites and the Pope, called the Basel Compact. The Hussites could still be part of the church, and would be allowed some special concessions, according to the teachings of Huss. So while Huss was not able to see it, in a way he would be vindicated, and his followers would get freedom that he did not. The execution of Huss is a great black spot in the history of the church, especially on the Council of Constance. In many other respects, the Council of Constance was a step forward for the church, and there were many great church leaders with very good intent at this church council. For instance, next episode we will look at the life of Jean Gerson, a French priest and scholar who was at the council. He was an honest and critically thinking man who earnestly wanted to act for the good of the church. Sadly, even he would vote to have Huss executed. He too had his eyes so fixed on the reunion of the church that he had no time to actually hear Huss's concerns. For a long time, Huss's legacy outside of the Czech lands would be under suspicion. 
a young Martin Luther, living about a hundred years later, would be accused of being a Hussite in a debate in 1518. At first, Luther was insulted by this, saying he was no heretic. But that night, he went home and actually read what Huss had written. And Luther discovered that he was in almost total agreement with Huss. And when he returned to the debate the next day, he had to admit, yes, he was a Hussite. Today, Huss is remembered as the great reformer before the Reformation. He would lay some of the groundwork that later Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin would build upon. And sadly, his treatment from the church showed that such reformation work could be very dangerous and that passages of safe conduct were not actually worth all that much. It also made future reconciliation with dissenters much more difficult for the church. This whole Huss business has also made me wonder, when did the church first start killing heretics? And who was the first person to be killed by Christians for being a heretic? So I did a little research on it. It turns out the first recorded death from accused heresy wasn't until 1077 in Cambrai, France. It was a priest named Ramahidris from Cambrai, and it's unclear whether he was killed by a mob or actually by his fellow priests. But before too long, such killing was much more common and then sadly even expected. In fact, in 1215, at the Fourth Lateran Council, a pronouncement was made that rulers must put heretics to death. It was their responsibility to, and I quote, exterminate in the territories subject to their jurisdiction, all heretics. This is probably something that Pope John XXIII showed to Emperor Sigismund in convincing him not to protect Huss. In fact, one of the charges against both Luther and Huss was that they believed heretics probably shouldn't be punished with the death penalty. So that's all I have today on Huss. He was a brave and tragic figure. And one can only wonder how the history of the church would be changed if the Council of Constance had dealt with him better. But I suppose we'll never know. As I said, next time we will learn about Jean Gerson, also a great reformer in his own right, but one that stayed within the official bounds of the church hierarchy, unlike Wycliffe and Huss. But after Gerson, we're going to take a little bit of a detour. I just got back from a trip to Ireland, and I'm pretty pumped about Irish history. And since I have unfortunately neglected the island a bit, I'm planning on doing a short run on what's been happening in Ireland all this time. So we'll start with, of course, St. Patrick, and we'll go from there. And thank you again for all your likes and your comments. And sorry that the shirts are still being worked on, but they'll be coming out before too long. And also, if there's any other merch or anything else you'd like me to produce, please let me know. Please write me a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and like my Facebook page. And as always, please, tell a friend. I'm Eric Klassen, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.